Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome back to the 84th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. We have a lot of good content for listeners this week. I think it's going to be a great one. Yeah, I think it will too. So we'll jump right into it and start with the performance uh, for the month and for the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on February 10th, and the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index was up 3.8, or is up 3.82% for the month of February, and up 4.31% for the year. The Dow up 4.14% for the month, and up 2.79% for the year. The Nasdaq up five, excuse me, 4.5% for the month, and 8.7% for the year. The IWM ETF that trucks tracks the Russell 2000 index up 8.27% for the month and up 16.3% for the year. Some index took their Wheaties this morning. Yeah. Or I'm know. sorry, year to date. Right. Holy smokes. Vanguard International ETF, X United States up 4.41% for the month and up 6.5% for the year. The three month T bill currently yielding 0.09%. The two year treasury point. Uh, 1.1%, and the 10-year Treasury yield uh, is sitting at 1.15%. So uh, getting into headlines and current events from the week here, um, stocks were up pretty big last week, Matt, after the minor sell-off the week prior Correct. with all the GameStop short squeeze action going on. Um, but we have, you know, stocks of all sizes hitting all time highs right now and, you know, stocks all around the world hitting all time highs. So, you know, that's I take not bearish, that, my friend. Right. I take that as, as an extremely bullish development. Um, January job numbers were released last Friday and the figures uh, showed that um, U.S. employers added 49,000 jobs in January, giving a lift to the labor market. After a surprising dip in December, the unemployment rate fell to 6.3%, and that was due in part to a contraction in the total number of employed workers. With that being said, we're still at a deficit of 9.9 million jobs from the February 2020 peak. Only thing I want to throw out there, Mark, for listeners is in regards to a recovery in GDP. I think they're forecasting a recovery in GDP sometime either this spring or summer compared to the pre-COVID high. And obviously, we're nowhere back where we need to be from the employment side of the equation. So just know that it's very well could happen where GDP recovers and we still have another 12 to 18 months for jobs to recover. That's very probable, not just possible. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, And as a reminder for everybody, tax filing season officially begins tomorrow, uh, which is Friday, February 12th. And the IRS also has made no indication that it plans to move back the filing date uh, deadline past April 15th this year. So as a reminder, the the tax filing deadline got pushed back last year due to COVID. There's been no indication that that is going to happen again. So plan to have your taxes wrapped up uh, by April 15th. I also heard that the probably the efficiency of getting 
uh, refunds for those that are due refunds is not going to be as quick as it has been in prior years. So I would make sure manage your expectations that you're not going to get that refund as, as quick as probably that you had in the past. Right. Okay. Um, move on to tweets, articles, and research from the week, and I will let you start. All right. I got some good ones for listeners. I'm really excited about these, Mark. Uh, the first one is a chart that I saw online from the website Advisor Perspectives. And what they did is they posted a really good chart of the S&P 500 index. And it shows the frequency of corrections going back to the great financial crisis market low of March 9th of 2009. And their definition of, a, of, um, of, of the correction is anything um, in excess of a 5% uh, downdraw. Um, drawdown from all-time highs. I apologize. Yeah, the drawdown from all-time highs. Create so, your own uh, terminology here. I'm going to start creating my own terms. <laughs> so I pulled a bespoke investment research move. All right? You'll love this. I ran my own data set on the chart. Okay, so going back to 2009, there have been 18 instances, Mark, where the drawdown of at least 5% from that movement, 18 instances. Of those, the average drawdown was 11.72%. Okay, in addition, there's no data sets for the year 2013, 2017, and 2019. Now, everyone remembers the drawdown we had due to COVID. That was a pretty uh, significant one, as people remember. So the drawdown at the absolute worst from the high was close to 34% last year was that mm -hmm. drawdown. And I know most people remember it, but I want to throw it out there. The reason I bring this up is, you know, the market has done relatively well year to date. And I would like to remind listeners that guess what? Sell-offs are common. And I would argue actually healthy for the market. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, I would even, you know, go as far as saying, you know, over the last decade, the markets have been very strong and we've been in a bull market over the past decade. And this goes to show you that sell offs between five and 30 percent are normal in bull markets. Thank you. You know, so, you know, if you look back to, you know, 2010, there was a drawdown of 16 percent. Uh, 2011, there was a drawdown of 19 percent. 2016, 14%, 2018, drawdowns of 10% several times. And, you know, over the past decade, if you were in the stock market, you made money. I love it. And again, this is to highlight that sell-offs are normal. And, and to enjoy, again, the higher than average rate of return in the markets, you have to deal with drawdowns and sell-offs and corrections like this. Bingo. You can't have your cake and eat it too. So what's the what's the you know the the negative side effect of getting stock like returns? You're going to get the stock like volatility, right? Right. And you have to be willing to endure that. And when people have proper time horizons, it shouldn't be the issue. Right. And the reason I think this is also worthy is there is uh, seems to be a lot of um, news outlets are giving credence to every time the market seems to correct two three percent. Everybody comes out of the woodwork calling for the market bubble, the market's going to crash. I mean, you hear these things constantly, Mark, right? And so when I saw this chart, I'm like, boom, perfect one to talk to listeners about. Corrections are normal in bull markets. This is not abnormal. And I would argue once again, healthy. Right. Agreed. Okay. I got one more and I'm going to turn it over to you, my friend. So I found the following quote, very applicable in today's market. Here we go. The quote. The market is a device for transferring money 
from the impatient to the patient. And that was Warren Buffett. And I'm going to go throw out my own quote for the recent market activity. Quote, the higher the volatility in the market, the more short-term focus traders get, which creates opportunities for long-term investors. Hence, if you're a long-term investor, don't fear volatility. Embrace it for the advantage that it is. Yeah, I think that's great. And it goes back to your first point with just, you know, realizing that there is vol there has been volatility over the past decade and returns have been, you know, higher than average in the stock market over that time. So, yep. um, you know, volatility for people um, that are invested in the stock market, they understand what their time horizon is. I would argue that volatility is not a bad thing. Thank you, sir. You know, thank you. So over to you. OK. Let's see if that uh, that quote makes it around around Wall Street and around uh, the major media outlets. Because, in my opinion, you're better than Warren Buffett. So, thank you, buddy. You're welcome. I'm also quite younger, right? <laughs> you are. So, by the time with compounding and time on my side, we'll see where this gets. Yeah. All right. All right. We'll keep track of that. Uh, the first thing I wanted to point out. Uh, was a stat from the Treasury Department, and um, was, I thought this was pretty interesting. So the average interest rate that the U.S. government pays on its interest-bearing debt as of uh, December 31st of 2020 was 1.695%. Down <laughs> what? Down from 2.3% as of uh, December 31st of 2015, five years earlier. Okay. So... That means that our government can borrow 37.5% more money today than it borrowed five years ago and still have the same out-of-pocket interest expense costs. That's significant. Right. It's kind of the same factor when you look at homeowners and real estate prices are moving up because rates keep coming down because affordability, right? They can purchase more home. It's no different when the interest rates come down for the government. They can borrow more at the same cost. And that's why I don't like when people just say, you know, our government can't afford to borrow anymore. You know, that is at all time highs. And I don't think you can look at it in that context. You know, why the heck wouldn't they borrow money at the low interest rates that they have right now? Just like a company or an individual? Absolutely. Right. Right. So, I mean, this all makes sense that you know, debt is at all-time highs right now. I don't think that should surprise anybody. No, not at all. Um, the next thing I had was a quote from a blog post by our friend Ashby Daniels on his blog, The Retirement Field Guide. And this blog post was titled, The Single Best Piece of Advice uh, for Young Inve Investors. And I just wanted to read a little excerpt from this because I thought this was this was pretty good. Ashby always has good stuff. I can't wait to hear this. He does. Um, so he talks about, um, obviously, as the title of the blog, um, you know, the best piece of advice that he can give for young investors. And he says this. I landed on the idea of investing 50 percent of every raise for your future self. We often underestimate the value of small decisions made over a long period of time. Even for the investor who isn't currently investing in anything and the prospect of investing seems daunting, this simple strategy can overcome a lot of obstacles. For example, from a starting point of $0 investing, if the investor receives a 3% raise each year and invests 50% of that raise for their future self, in 30 years, they are investing 45% of their salary. 
If they already are investing 10% of their salary and they start this strategy, they'll be investing 55% in 30 years. And they can do that without ever taking a pay cut. It's almost too simple. Regardless of how the pay increase originates, for each and every pay increase, take half of it and invest it. I love this. And this also helps with the problem of lifestyle creep, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Mark, I think this is well put by Ashby. I mean, ultimately, if we could have more and more people focus on um, instead of you got to be at a 10% contribution rate of your income for your retirement, every year challenge yourself to save, you know, a significant portion, 50% of that raise. That's a lot more, I think, psychologically acceptable to most individuals. Right, exactly. And you know, I'm all for when you get a raise to, you know, treat yourself and be able to spend on discretionary sure. uh, things, you know, as well. But at the same time, don't do all of it, because then you're going to get to the point where you're um, comfortable with a certain lifestyle and it's hard to go back and flip the lifestyle around and start saving more. So why don't just knock knock it out? Still give yourself a raise in terms of what you're able to spend every month, but sure. put away at least some of that to, to saving. I think it's perfectly put by Ashby. Um, the next one is, uh, this was one that I wanted to talk about here for a little while, but we just had a lot of other data to talk about. It was a tweet from Jeff Levine on uh, January 22nd. Okay. Um, and on Twitter, he's got a lot of good stuff. He's at CPA Planner, if people want to follow him. Um, but he tweeted this. There's a real chance that $10,000 of federal student loan debt gets forgiven at some point later this year. With required payments now on hold until October, advisors should strongly consider advising clients with less than 10000 of such debt to pause any voluntary payments. Again, don't know if this is going to happen or not, but I agree with them. Why would you, you know, make payments on that amount of money if it's going to be forgiven anyway? So with, you know, interest being on hold until October, you know, this kind of makes sense just to put that on pause for right now. I think it does as well. I think it's great advice from Jeff. I mean, ultimately, I would agree with his stance. I think it, it is it is likely. Right. So, um, again, might happen, might not happen, but um, you know, if it does, then you know that's going to save a significant amount of money for a lot of people. So um, people should factor that in if they're they're paying student loan debt off right now. That's great. Um, okay, so jumping into the financial planning topic of the week, this was an article on Think Advisor titled Four Things Retirees Should Know About RMD Withdrawal Strategies in 2021." And this is by Ginger Salza. Hey, Mark, before you, before you continue, why don't we explain to listeners what an RMD is? Yeah. So once someone is over the age of, or excuse me, once someone turns 72, the federal government requires them to take a minimum amount out of their uh, pre-tax 401k or IRA so that the government can get their tax revenue on it. That's okay? right. And it's based upon what? Life expectancy tables. Yep. Um, so usually, and this isn't exact, so don't quote me on it. The first year you have to take an, uh, an RMD, it's somewhere like 3% of the total account value. Okay. And it's based upon the previous year end account value. Right. Yep. Right. So um, just for listeners, um, you know, prior to uh, when the SECURE Act got passed, 
um, you know, this age used to be 70 and a half. So it was people 70 and a half and older, but now it's up to 72 and older. So if people didn't realize that changed, it did change. So the new RMD age is 72. Correct. It changed in December of 2019, but due to the COVID waving of RMD last year in 2020, a lot of people haven't really noticed that yet. Right, right. And um, and Ginger wrote this article um, after Morningstar's Christine Benz, who we talked about on the podcast before, spoke with Vanguard's Maria Bruno on retirement income planning uh, and how it's unusual this year. Uh, so again, like we just talked about in 2020, the required minimum distribution was waived and the age at which retirees must begin taking RMDs was raised from 72 uh, 272 from 70 and a half. Okay. Okay. Um, so Bruno kind of went over, um, four different suggestions. First RMDs are back and they must be taken yearly due to the pandemic required minimum distributions intended to spread out a retiree savings and the related taxes over an expected lifetime were waived in 2020. Also, the RMD age was raised due to the SECURE Act, so those who turn 72 this year have until April 1st of 2022 to take their distribution. Those older than 72 must take their RMDs by December 31st. Correct. And I kind of just want to pause here, Matt, because I know me and you are on the same page with this, that we think it's smarter for people to take RMDs in the year they turn 72 and not wait until the following April. I agree. Okay. This way they won't have to take two RMDs in their second year. So for example, someone turns 72 in 2021 and they wait until April of 2022 to take their first RMD, they still need to take another RMD by year end in 2022 to satisfy 2022's RMD. That's right. And it could end up being in a higher tax bracket. Right. And this causes, you know, this can cause additional income, obviously, which, as you just said, would bump people up into another tax bracket. So that's just one thing that, you know, I like to do. And there's a lot of our clients just with compounding and performance that all of a sudden, you know, that RMD a couple years ago, uh, fictitiously was 10 grand. And now all of a sudden it's 25 grand and you do two of those in a year, that's going to bump you another bracket. Right, exactly. That's a significant jump. Yeah. Um, Bruno cautioned that the cost of not taking the distribution is significant, a 50% excise tax for the amount that should have been taken. It's significant, 50%. That's huge. That's huge. And usually if you work with a, with a financial advisor, they have systems in place to make sure they're on top of this. Yep. Um, but you need to be, you know, getting back to them you know, in a reasonable time manner. So you take it before the end of the year so you don't get penalized. Got it. Okay. Number two, uh, she says, start thinking about withdraw strategies uh, before RMD age. And an example that comes to mind to me, Matt, is that if someone has a large IRA or a large 401k, they need to be prepared to have a significant amount of taxable income just from their RMD alone. So for example, There's a 72-year-old, has a traditional IRA that has $3 million. They could be looking at an RMD of upwards, you know, of almost $100,000. I was going to suggest that, yeah. And people need to plan for that. You can't just, you know, get there and be like, oh, I have $100,000 in taxable income and, you know, what do I do now? I don't want to pay taxes on all that, nor do I need all that. And in retirement, you have limited options. Right. So obviously a couple of potential strategies would be Roth conversions, yep. um, you know, prior to the age of 72. So you get that pre-tax money, get some of that taxed 
and move to uh, an after-tax vehicle. That's one way. And then uh, charitable distributions from tax-deferred accounts uh, to satisfy some RMDs, right? And I think a lot of people underutilize that that ability. Right. So do you want to just briefly you know, explain how, how that would work if people wanted to you know, charitably give from their, their IRA to satisfy their RMD? Absolutely. So the charitable distribution from an IRA works in this fashion. You're able to designate that your retirement account and goes directly to a 501c3 approved nonprofit organization, and it can do so and completely avoid federal and state taxes. In doing so, that amount will go against your required minimum distribution for the year. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a maximum that's associated with this. Let's say you have a higher value account IRA. The government will only allow you to do this up to $100,000 per calendar year. So if you do fall into a circumstance where either your RMD is above $100,000, the $100,000 is the maximum for this. Um, but it is something to note. But this is a phenomenal way. I would rather see a client do a charitable distribution for their philanthropic desires than write a check out of their checking account. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just makes more sense. Makes a lot more tax sense. Yeah. Um, and that kind of flows into number three. It goes without saying taxes matter. So work with a tax or financial professional if you're not equipped to do it yourself. Absolutely. Uh, The last thing was the 4% rule isn't dead, but be flexible. And I think we can get into a little bit of a discussion on this because I think it's controversial to... It is controversial. I know you're going with this, and I'm looking forward to this. So she noted that in Vanguard's long-term forecast, and by everyone that listens to this podcast regularly, regularly, you know that I hate forecasts, um, (laughs) investment returns are, quote, muted. A projected median return is 4.5% with inflation potentially around 25 to 3%, Bruno said. That doesn't mean the 4% rule is dead, she said. Just be mindful in terms of what conditions we're looking at today and over the next couple of years. Retirees might need to be a little bit mindful in terms of ratcheting back spending a bit. So give me your thoughts here. Again, I don't necessarily agree with Morningstar's projected returns or really any projected returns because I just don't. But So I think their analysis is based upon the following assumptions. One, that the risk tolerance that is selected for this is static and does not change with market environments. And what I mean by that is, let's say they profile the person as moderate risk. In good times, they're moderate risk. In bad times, they're moderate risk. And I think in addition, it's utilizing passively invested index funds in their assumption. And it doesn't surprise me that their forecasts are coming up with such subpar forecast returned. Mm -hmm. My two cents, I'm biased because guess what? We're active managers. Mm -hmm. But I think the fact that they're not being... Um, let's just say flexible in a risk tolerance and they're utilizing passive funds. Well, yeah, I think the performance is going to be poor. Mm-hmm. That's just my opinion. I'm biased. But what do you have to say? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, it just we everyone manages money differently, I guess. Um, but forecasting to me is just that it's forecasting. You know, how many times have we talked about it on this podcast where you have some of the brightest minds um, and economics forecast where interest rates are going to be or forecast the returns for the market over the next couple of years. And 
9.9999999 times out of 10, they're wrong. <laughs> I love it. That's why I have to once in a while, I got to bring up some forecasts in the podcast just to just to make sure you're still uh, you're still ticking over there. I know it really gets to you. Right. Exactly. I love it. I got to uh, poke the bear once in a while. And speaking of forecasts, it's not really forecast, but our listener question for this week uh, has to do with that slightly and um and and christy asked in regards to our topic uh discussed on episode 83 which was last week's episode if people want to check that out um uh she said this just finished listening so what exactly does raising guidance mean that's a great question christy i like that one Mm -hmm. so um christy what it means is every quarter publicly traded companies uh, report their earnings to shareholders And um, usually it's about four weeks after the end of the quarter. And that's a general statement. And so for the fourth quarter of 2020, companies have been reporting over the past roughly two and a half, three weeks on their financial results. And a part of those results, Christy, is where in previous earnings announcements, they have provided forward earnings guidance to shareholders. And when a company um, reports their next series of earnings, they're either going to raise that previous guidance, they're going to maintain that previous guidance, or they're actually going to lower the previous guidance. And so we view it, Christy, as a bullish activity that when a company is raising guidance, that is telling us that the underlying fundamentals of their company are better than they had forecasted even three months ago. Right. And so we take it as a very bullish data point for that specific company. And when we see as a whole, Christy, that a lot of companies are doing this, that tells us that uh, Wall Street, the analyst people are behind the eight ball and these companies are doing a little bit better than people expected. Yeah, uh, that's a perfect I won't, good way of saying it. Yeah, I won't add anything because I don't want to mess it up. So. All right. Um, that's all I had, Matt. Anything else that you want to mention? I just got one other comment we... on uh, RMDs. I think it would be helpful for the listeners that fall into this category to know that they can satisfy, if they have multiple IRAs at different custodians, you just want to take a second, Mark, and explain you know, how they would have to satisfy RMDs overall between multiple accounts. Yeah. So say you have you know, uh, an, an IRA that you manage yourself and you have an IRA or excuse me, traditional IRA that you manage yourself, a traditional IRA that you have a financial advisor who manages it for you. Mm -hmm. In the eyes of the government, they do not care which account you take the RMD from. So you could take it all from one account. You could split it between the two accounts and take the RMDs that way. As long as you take the full RMD amount from the two combined traditional IRAs, you'll satisfy your RMD. I think it's great to explain that. However, you cannot combine traditional IRA RMDs with 401k RMDs if you have a previous 401k. So it has to be the same account type to be able to do that with. Thank you for specifying that. I think it's great because, you know, we are in an environment where people have some multiple accounts at times. Yeah. And I think it's important to know they could satisfy it in one if it's the same account type. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay. Well, I think we'll leave it there for the week then. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming back and, and listening to the 84th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. 
Uh, hope you all have a great rest of the week. Stay warm because it's cold and snowy where we are right now. So I envy everybody that's in the South. <laughs> Take care, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.